Recently, there have been debates about who's the greatest of all time. In any sport, there's always debates about who is the greatest athlete in any particular field of sports. In the la about the last five to ten years, there's been debates about the GOAT in basketball. The debate is usually between Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, or now LeBron James. Three great athletes who have accomplished a lot in their prospective careers. But when you debate, you compare their resume, their accolades, the list of accolades, their list of accomplishments. And in this particular debate, when it comes to them, it's about their championships. Michael has six, Kobe has five, LeBron has four. MJ went six and zero oh in the finals, Kobe Bryant went five and two, and LeBron is four and six. But did you know that it took Michael Jordan seven years before he won his first championship? He was eliminated from the playoffs for six straight years before he reached his first finals and eventually his first championship. It took Kobe Bryant four years before he won his first championship. And in 1997, in the Western Conference Finals, Kobe took the last shot, which would have tied the game, and sent it into overtime. And he missed it. And as a result, they were eliminated from the playoffs. It took LeBron James nine years before he won his first title. He had been to the finals two times before and fell short. Now, this is just a small example of three men who are considered great at their craft. And even they were not exempt from facing challenges, failures, before they reached the pinnacle of their professional careers. Their failures were in the public eye, with millions of people from all over the world looking at them, watching them, critiquing them. Yet, what we're now learning about their lives is that there were long hours, work that went unseen, away from the public eye, that helped them overcome and ultimately achieve their goals. I think a similar thing can be said about our faith. It's easy for us to see the faith of other people through posts, through teachings, of some of the men and women of our church and be in awe of their faithfulness to Jesus. Listening to their teachings, even their prayers, their knowledge of the word, at times we can't help but to feel that we might have missed something along the way. Why isn't my faith like theirs? We have plenty of questions circling in our minds and in our hearts that make us feel guilty about the doubts and the questions and the struggles that we experience. Rest assured that nothing is wrong with you. To doubt, to que the questions you have, the struggles are all a part of the journey, are all a part of the Christian journey. The key is in what we do with the doubt, the questions and the struggles that we face. Following Jesus does not prevent us from going through trials. Following Jesus allows us to view the trials, the challenges of our lives as opportunities to encounter Jesus in a more personal and intimate way.
turning to Jesus with our doubts, with our questions, in our struggles, is where the true transformation of our faith, of our hearts, really takes place. We are all on a pilgrimage. Working, fighting, struggling, and at times wrestling with God to become who we are created to be. Following Jesus, we will encounter loss. We will encounter failures. Unexpected events that will break us. That challenge us. That make us doubt. That make us question why. But what makes these moments so difficult is that even though we're following Jesus, even though we're believers, we feel alone. We feel like we're forgotten. God is nowhere to be found sometimes in, this, in these seasons of life. We feel lost in obscurity. Feel forgotten and unseen. We question where God is. And it feels like the life that we're living is more difficult and challenging than the life of those who aren't following Jesus at all. It feels unfair. But listen to the words of the Apostle Peter when he says this. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold through perishable, is refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Trial, suffering, the refining, waiting are all a part of the journey of the transformation of our hearts and our souls. Now, this might seem unsexy, unappealing, but the result of all this is praise and glory and honor to God because through, these fire, through this fire, we become more like Jesus. The transformation that takes place in our lives is what blesses those around us. The transformation that takes place inside each and every single one of us is how God changes the world. It's the work that he does in our hearts. Now let's look at some, a few examples in the Bible. When God talked to Noah and asked him to build an ark because a flood was coming, it took Noah 120 years to build the ark before the first drop of, wa of water dropped. Noah waited. He endured for 120 years. Now Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. And it took Abraham 90 years for him to have his first child with Sarah. 90 years of waiting, of hoping, of wondering, until he was able to finally hold his miracle baby. Joseph, 
who had a dream about being a ruler and, kind of, and, and his brothers would come to him and kneel before him. It took Joseph 20 years for that dream to come to fruition. 20 years in which he endured some hardships, some jail time, some accusations of adultery, and then he was trusted to be the right hand of the Pharaoh. King David, from the time that he was anointed as a young boy to him becoming the king of God's people, took somewhere between 15 and 20 years. 15 and 20 years where he spent fighting. He was actually persecuted before being crowned king. And the Apostle Paul, one of the most influential men in the Bible, responsible for almost half of the New Testament writings, it took him 13 years from the moment that he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus to the beginning of his ministry. 13 years where he wrestled with God about his doubts, his questions that came from his Jewish traditions to ultimately surrendering and trusting in Jesus. Now these are just a few examples from the Bible of the lives of people who God, when he showed himself, promised them something. And it took years, decades, for it to come to fruition. There was a period of time where these men felt lost. They felt like they were in a little bit of obscurity. Into the silence where they experienced trials, challenges, but ultimately they became moments of transformation. Their faith grew because in their time of waiting, God was working in their hearts. Their doubts, their questions, their trials were not because God didn't love them or because God was punishing them, but it was, to com it was the complete opposite. It's because God loved them. It's because God cared for them that he led them down this path so that they could ultimately have more of him. Following Jesus is not a life of perfection. It's a life where everything, all of the sudden, where it's, a, it's not a life where everything all of a sudden makes sense and everything works for our good. I think as a church, at least out here in the West, we have been bought into this idea that following Jesus means that all our troubles disappear. That change happens instantaneously. But real change takes time. And at times, it, it leads us into a place of obscurity. But rest assured that the trials in our lives, the doubts, the questions that we face are all a part of the journey towards transformation that is happening. Because we're never alone. And we're actually in the Father's hands. Look at what Isaiah says. In, um, he says, Yet, Lord, you are our Father. And we are the clay. You are our potter. We all are the work of your hands. So let's take a look at the life of Jesus. When we end in chapter 2 in the book of Matthew, we end with Jesus as a child. And when we pick up in chapter 3, 
It begins with Jesus in his adult life of 30. From what we can gather, the last known age of Jesus was about 12 in chapter 2. That is 18 years that are unaccounted for in the life of Jesus. These 18 years have been known in some instances as the lost years of Jesus. But I would argue that they're more like the hidden years of Jesus. What we know from looking at the Gospels in the account of, of Luke is that Jesus was about the age of 12 when Jesus, Joseph, and Mary went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover was something that a practicing Jew was to do yearly. But for Jesus on this account was a rite of passage into spiritual adulthood. Now this is important because early tradition shows that at some point after this trip to the temple in Jerusalem, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, passed away. Joseph is believed to have passed away at some point early in Jesus' teenage years. Because of this, tradition now places Jesus at the head of his household to kind of take on the responsibilities that Joseph held. So when we read that Jesus was a carpenter, for instance, um, in Matthew, where it says, uh, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brother James, Joseph, and Simon of Judas? Is because he was. Jesus took on the responsibilities of Jesus, meaning he was a worker doing manual labor. Now, the word carpenter, as we've kind of come to know Jesus to be, is a little bit nicer detail than what he actually was. Jesus was more like a stone cutter than a carpenter. In other words, his work was heavy and hard. For 18 years before God released him into public ministry, Jesus was out of the public eye and working away doing manual labor. These years are the hidden years of Jesus because in this waiting, God was working in his heart. Now this may seem odd and perhaps a bit strange, but this is the time where Jesus truly developed and cultivated a personal relationship with the Father. So here's just three simple points that we're going to cover today. The waiting that take place in the hidden years of Jesus' life, even in our lives, are not, it's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting where God works in our hearts. Again, let's, let's go back to, to 1 Peter um, verses 6 through 7. You rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith that is more valuable than gold, though it's perishable, is refined by fire. The trials and the challenges in our lives are to refine us. The byproduct of that is that it results in praise and glory and honor because of the Spirit of God in us, the reflection of Jesus Christ in us. Oftentimes, 
It's easy to forget that Jesus was human. Jesus chose to leave his home and to come down on earth and become a true man, to become one of us. By becoming a human, he took on the flesh, which meant he also needed to learn to live just like us, to learn to attune, to learn to develop a relationship with the Father just like we're learning. Jesus, being the Son of God, didn't come with the preconditioned um, heart to love God and be devoted to Him. That was something that Jesus had to learn on His own. Jesus learned how to live a life of devotion to God that stemmed from love, not from obligation. As a Jewish boy, he learned all about the Torah. He was well-versed in the scriptures, in the prayers, and in all of the traditions. He was taught to understand the ways of God. But Jesus discovered, uncovered a path on his time here on earth that wasn't just about understanding the ways of God, but how to live with a personal and intimate connection with the Father. This is important for us because understanding the ways of God are the foundation of our faith. As we read the scriptures, we become familiar with him, his words, his story of love for humanity, and he slowly begins to reveal himself to us by showing us his character and his kingdom. Investing time in learning and growing is good, for us because we're getting a mental map of who God is. But there is an invitation to something deeper. Because what happens is we can also create an image and unknowingly expectations of God if we just stick to knowing about Him. We easily fall into the trap of relating His goodness to our circumstances. In other words, when things are good, God is good. But this creates a challenge because when things don't go as planned, when we face challenges and trials, we become disoriented. Somehow God doesn't make sense because I'm living my life like this. This is what's happening. The reality of who God is doesn't necessarily line up with the ideals that I've created about him. We begin to doubt, we begin to question, we begin seeking answers, seeking anything to help bring, um, uh, to fix and bring a solution to the problems that we're facing. We become more confused when reason and logic doesn't produce the solution that we're looking for. We turn to God and ask, where are you? We shout and scream and he's even more silent. We feel lost and forgotten. What we miss is that the very foundation of our faith is what's being tested. During this time, the ideals that we have of God, the sin that exists in our lives, our attachments, our hurts, our brokenness, the condition of our hearts is being brought to the surface. And it feels disorienting because we're unfamiliar with that part of our, 
of ourselves. And it's scary. But God is inviting us to something deeper. What we're being invited to is to actually go to a personal encounter with Jesus. Knowledge is so much more than logic, Bible facts, doctrine, and principles. The word know and knowledge are used over 1,500 times in the Bible. The biblical concept of knowledge goes much deeper than that. It does include um, skills for life, but it also includes an interactive relationship with God. Knowledge is relational. This is where we must step into an unknown territory and like Jesus, learn the relational ways of God. This is where we come to experience an intimate way to the intimacy that exists in the heart of God. And this is where our real and true faith is born. Our old ways, including our views, our ideals, and at times our dreams must be put to death. Because you cannot have a new life without death. You just can't. That's what baptism is for. We'll cover that in chapter 3 in the future. But we cannot have real faith without putting to death our old ways. Look at the words of Teresa of Avila. She says, Don't just seek the consolations of God, but seek the God of consolations. We can't just get fixated on the circumstances that are right in front of us. God desires for us to love Him, not because of what He can do for us, but because of who He is. A love that is based on circumstances is a conditional type of love. A love that is consistent despite the circumstances is an unconditional love. God wants us to learn to love Him the same way that He loves us. Same way that He loves you. Unconditionally. When we look at the life of Jesus, He walked with an unbreakable bond, a trust in the Father that had never been seen before. For 18 years, all we know is that he was out of the public eye. He still had a mission. But he was not released to go. For 18 years, he waited. But his waiting wasn't in vain. He wasn't at home just sitting, kicked up his sandals on the table, on the coffee table, waiting on the call, ready to go. He was waiting And God was continuing to work on his heart. And listen to his words in Matthew 11, verse 27. The Father has given me all these things to do and say. This is a unique father-son operation. Coming out of the father and son intimacies and knowledge. No one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does. But I'm not going to keep this to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. 
Jesus discovered and lived in a personal relationship with his father. This is what he was pointing to the three years of his adult life in ministry. It's about the closeness, the intimacy with God the Father that we can now live with and live in. The sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the deep understanding of God's way and His kingdom here on earth came from that season of waiting. It came from the work that took place in His heart in the hidden years of His life. Jesus' heart was being transformed by the love of the Father in a personal and intimate way away from the spotlight. Jesus' strength to defeat the devil in the, in the desert wasn't supernatural. His sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's leading to go and know the timing of when and where God's glory would be revealed wasn't unexplainable. The miracles that came out of him were not magic. Or his teachings that helped show people the way, they were not made up. All of them were an expression of the Father's love that overflowed from him. Here's the second point. Transformation is, is a path towards healing. Paul says this, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is a part kind of like of the mystical, of like the mysterious side of our faith, where the true journey of our souls begins. The part of the transformation is purifying, but it can also be painful. This is where we begin to learn about ourselves and see where our hearts have found security and comfort. That's not Jesus. This is where our sinful behavior begins to shed light into the things that we have kind of that have led us astray, the, the places, the areas where we find safety, security, and love. That's not Jesus. And detaching from that is what's painful because it feels unsafe, it feels unsecure. But it is important that we are aware, and that's part of the journey. Listen to what St. Augustine said. He said this. He said, Lord, let, Lord Jesus, help me to know myself so that I may know you. If we don't know the areas where we're broken, how can we expect to invite Jesus into those areas? We can't. Breaking from these attachments is not easy. Therefore, it's painful. But if we're willing, it's in these areas of brokenness where we're able to encounter the love of the Father the exact same way that Jesus did. Bill Gaultier, who uh, was a like spiritual father for me for like three years and, and a, a mentor of mine, he said this, we cannot repent of sin that we're not conscious of. And we cannot be healed of the brokenness if we refuse to feel it. That's why it's important for us to understand and be aware of what's happening inside of us, what has taken place and transpired. Maybe you're dealing with the sickness that has plagued you for years. Maybe you're dealing with guilt and shame that has been in your heart for as long as you can remember. Or a sinful behavior, an addiction, 
a secrecy that's destroying you inside. You might be carrying an undealt with frustration and anger from things that didn't necessarily plan out the way you envisioned them. Until we face it, until we acknowledge its existence, we cannot begin the process of healing. where Jeremiah says in uh, chapter 6, verse 14, you can't heal a wound by saying it's not there. It's just not possible. Whatever it is, could it be that instead of wishing it away, instead of fantasizing about the time when I no longer have to deal with or struggle with that or have that in my life, could it be that that exact thing is the invitation to the transformation that God has planned for you? Could it be that this is where he wants to meet us? That even though we might feel unseen God, and God might feel distant and far away, maybe even uncaring, that he's actually a lot closer than we can see. The invitation that Jesus has for us is not just to see that he's close. He wants us to experience his closeness. Jesus wants to meet us in those areas of brokenness because that is where he truly comes alive in every single one of our hearts. That is where the promises that we read about actually come to life, where they make sense, where little by little we begin to let go of those attachments and learn to lean on him and trust. In other words, where slowly, little by little, Jesus becomes enough. And here's the third and final point. Transformation leads to simplicity. Transformation leads to simplicity. John 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus' words, he said, Let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way that I have loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples. When they see the love that you have for each other. Notice the simplicity that is at the core of this command. Love one another. Love one another. But if we're honest, it's really hard to do. Our love is very conditional. But a love that is produced in our heart is the love that we're able to give to each other. The love that overflows from us is the mark of our discipleship. But notice where it comes from. The love that we're going to give comes from Jesus first. Love one another the same way that I loved you. The way of Jesus is simple. If you really think about it, the way of Jesus is simple, but we tend to overcomplicate it by what we bring to the table. Our transformation leads us to a simpler way of doing things. And this is what Jesus meant when he was talking about the easy yoke. 
Jesus' life was in the easy yoke of the Father. It was in the easiness of the relationship with the Father. Jesus' gentleness, his kindness, his sensitivity to those around him was all an expression of God's love through him. Jesus never announced that he was those things. People experienced them. People experienced the gentleness as an expression of God's love for them. And Jesus' focus wasn't to people, please, because he didn't heal everybody. It wasn't what he was going to eat or where he was going to sleep. We see it all through the Bible. He says, don't worry about these things. Jesus had one single focus, was to remain in the Father's love. That was it. It was that simple. He wasn't worried about the past, worried about the future. He was present in the moment. That's what simplicity ushers us into. That is what the kingdom of God is. It's about the loving presence, the living presence of God in this very moment. Because all of our worry, all of our anxiety, all of our stress, all of our guilt, all of our shame, that's what they rob us. That's what they take us away from from experiencing God in that very moment. And this is what the simplicity of his life made clear for him. God loved him and God was with him. Nothing anybody said, nothing anybody could ever do could take that away from him. And he knew that. Jesus knew from a relational experience how much the Father loved him. Jesus' devotion to God continued to grow throughout those three years by his private practices, by private practices that he had developed and cultivated during the hidden years. So the spiritual disciplines that we see Jesus doing his adult life, he was doing his entire life. They may not have been well documented, but you cannot have that level of discipline without living that life of, of, of private devotion to, to God. Spiritual disciplines helped clear the path to this simple yet full and abundant life. An unseen gift that comes from this simplicity is that we begin to see extraordinary things in the ordinary and mundane moments of our lives. That's the gift. They become extraordinary because we're living in the kingdom of the heavens. We know that as we're washing dishes, cleaning our house, taking care of our kids, working, in a manual job, out in the sun, whatever it is, God is with us, and we're loved. That it's not about, oh, I didn't read my Bible this morning. I didn't say my prayers. I didn't serve. I didn't do that. No, no, no. God loves you in this exact moment because you're his beloved child. That's what simplicity does. It lets us hone in and understand 
the only truth that our hearts are really aching for. This is how Jesus was able to endure those moments of extreme difficulty. His suffering was brutal to the point of death. Yet he did it with such a joy in his heart because he knew what it was going to bring. He knew that the Father was with him. The only reason why he was able to bear it. Jesus knew deep at the core of his being that God loved him and God was with him. And this is what those hidden years cultivated. A depth and intimacy with the Father that was unbreakable. The private matters of his heart is where he encountered the Father's love in a way that the world had never seen before. But when most, but when most people attributed his miracles as a great prophet, as a holy man, were just simple expressions of the Father's love. For us, this is the invitation. This is the invitation. You might be going through something that nobody knows. You might be wrestling with something. But know that that is a part of, of, of the fire that you're going through. Back in, um, in Exodus, when, when Moses meets him, God gives a, a detailed version of like who he is, of his character, right? It can all kind of be summarized into the Hebrew word hased, right? God's loving kindness. But in there, there's a passage where he says like it, it, he's going to go through generations of, of kind of judgment. I don't want to misquote it. And I don't have it up here, but he kind of does something like that. And a lot of the times when we read it, we're like, man, like it sounds like, a, like God's coming as, a, as, a, as, as punishment, like he's going to correct things. But all that can be summed up to one very loving word. It's called redemption. Some of us have, are, are, are the trailblazers of our, of our families. Some of us in our lifetime have encountered Jesus for the first time. What we're doing is we're breaking generational curses and generational sins. The trialing fires that we're going to walk through are going to be excruciating. But that's because of the purification process that needs to take place in our lives. Because what we get to leave behind is a legacy, a love and a devotion to Jesus. What you're going through is not because God doesn't love you. It's the opposite. It's because He loves you, that He's purifying you and going through this fire to help rid of these things that have cursed your life, your family, and the generations before you. Look at what um, the Apostle uh, Paul says in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be comforted to the image, uh, to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and many sisters. 
And those he predestined, he also called. And those who are called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You might be going through the fire, but know that in this, God is being glorified because of who you're becoming. Your children, those around you in your workplace, whoever, your family members, will be blessed because of the work that God is doing in and through your heart.